You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, listeners and friends. It's Adam Brooks here. Welcome to another episode of Reads Like a Four, episode 16. This is, of course, the podcast that deals with reviews, critics and criticism, both online and in print and spanning travel, TV, film, movies, music and beyond. This week's episode brings a new guest whose name is... Ed Potton. And here's a bit about what Ed is up to. Uh, Well, I am a commissioning editor on The Times Arts Desk in London. Uh, I've been at the Times, it's pretty much my, my first job since university, which is which is ridiculously fortunate, and, and I'm sort of clinging on by, by my fingertips as, as, as redundancies happen left, right and centre. Um, I'm responsible mainly for film and music. I'm a deputy film critic, so I do lots of film reviews, obviously. Um, I also commission uh, music coverage, and I do lots of live reviews. Uh, and then I do interviews across across both of those subjects and, and, and sort of elsewhere in the arts. So we've already heard from uh, somebody from the Times camp. In fact, another commissioning editor, Nancy Durrant, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, Ed deals more with the TV and film side of things, as you'll have just heard. Uh, he was recently at Cannes Film Festival. And so that's where we kick off today's conversation. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us at all, you can email readslikea4 at gmail.com. And don't forget, we're on Twitter and Instagram uh, at readslikea4, where you'll get uh, previews of each week's episode before. Before it goes up and then also on the day of the episode on twitter you'll find extra reading and links that we may have mentioned in each week's episode uh, so enough of that let's talk to ed the episode um so one thing i wanted to start with was um we were talking we've been talking for a couple of weeks but we've been sort of trying to make this uh, this episode happen but i think firstly you were busy in Cannes, and so i thought that might be a good place to start i wondered with the Cannes film mm. festival if you could paint a brief picture of it for people who've never been or perhaps only know it from the, a logo on a film poster yeah, it's it's decidedly less glamorous when when you're kind of at the sharp end. Not to say it's not fun. I mean, it's very exciting, but it's 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 a real kind of treadmill. I mean, I I was there for uh, just under a week, and you spend the vast majority of your time either watching films or reviewing the films you've already watched. Um, a new kind of development this year was that they actually brought in a, um, a new ruling. You used to be able to go and see the films. Um, that you were reviewing before the kind of big uh, glitzy gala premieres. 
now they actually, uh, you either have to go to the premiere yourself or, or see a film that's shown at exactly the same time. This was to, to, that they, I mean, there were lots of theories as to why they brought this new ruling in, uh, the most persuasive of which was that the um, rather vain uh, um, head of the festival didn't like the scenario whereby he would be walking down the red carpet with all these kind of Hollywood actors or, or kind of big name directors, knowing that their film had already been uh, given a savaging by the critics and the reviews were already up online. I mean, I can kind of sympathise with him, uh, you know, in that regard, but it does make our, our job slightly difficult, more difficult, because we would have less time to write the reviews, so we would often have to scurry out of the cinema, run back to our hotel, get on the laptop, and we'd have, you know, an hour, sometimes tops, to actually get the review uh, um, uh, back to London and, and get it put up online. Right. Do you think they, they, they th thought they were getting to a position where the festival that used to drive the reviews is now being driven by the reviews because they're, they're happening as, as it's going on? I, I think I think there was an element of that, and and you know, and I, I I kind of had a little bit of a dig at him him being vain, but I can I can see the logic of of you know it must be fairly dispiriting walking down that red carpet and having all those flashbulbs going on, uh, and, and and but realizing that people are kind of muttering behind their hands about how awful the film that you're kind of parading is. Yeah, so no, it does make sense. I guess they yeah, Sorry. if they they can imagine the kinds of articles those photos that are being taken are going to appear next to. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and so you, I think you need to give them at least their, their kind of one moment in the sun and, and sort of, a, you know, at least the illusion that, that, that maybe this film will be um, welcomed with open arms, even if it is the, the biggest turkey since Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say, looking at a lot of the reporting from Cannes, not necessarily in the Times, but just sort of across the board, prominence is often given to films that prompt walkouts or bannings, controversy, standing ovations, that sort of thing. Do you think with the audience being made up of people so invested in film that walkouts and are easier to come by at Cannes or, or even a little contrived in some sense, uh, occasions? I think they are slightly contrived. It's become a, a kind of a kind of little thing that's almost sort of unique to Cannes. And, and, and I think people are far more likely to do it at Cannes than they would um, in, in, maybe, in maybe other arenas. I mean, I haven't been to see many films in France not in Cannes, so maybe it's, maybe it's more of a French thing, but I, I don't think it is. I, I, think that, I think there is something a, a sort of slightly self-indulgent about it. I mean, I, the, the film that I saw this year that would, that would fit that kind of uh, bill most closely would, would be the new Lars von Trier one, mm -hmm. The House That Jack Built, uh, which is a serial killer movie with, with um, Matt Dillon, and, and it has got some really graphic, really disturbing scenes of, of of particularly women being mutilated and murdered, um, that that prompted apparently lots of walkouts. There weren't that many walkouts in the screening I was in. There, there were maybe I saw maybe like one or two people leave. There were a few people kind of um, muttering and kind of not not even quite booing, just kind of. Uh, sighing loudly, I, I, I think. I mean, but yeah, I was a little, I, I, I have to say, I found a lot of those reactions a little bit silly. Because I mean, if you're going to see a film about a serial killer, you're going to expect it to be disturbing and graphic and unpleasant. I mean, that's, mm. that's it's, it's not going to be, uh, yeah. And I mean, aside from aside from the issue of whether that particular film deserved walkouts or not, it does feel to me a bit as a as, as a layperson that's never been to the Cannes Film Festival that there's an element of flouncing to, to all of these walkouts and innovations and things. A bit a bit a bit of kind of a, a flair for the theatric. Absolutely, and I think I think that's 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 Cannes to a T. I mean, that they 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 like having their kind of 
things that they can look down their noses at. at, at. So, I mean, for example, there was a big furore this year about Netflix. Uh, apparently, um, it, it, it was it was because Netflix were refusing to uh, give a theatrical release to the, to the films, and 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 the kind of rather kind of old school kind of purists at Cannes didn't think this was a good thing. Uh, and then apparently Netflix kind of threw a wobbly and withdrew all their films. I mean, there's, there's lots of other kind of. Uh, stories as to why that might have happened, uh, one of which is that Netflix weren't given what they believe was kind of uh, due prominence for their films and they were kind of sort of treated as second-class citizens and given kind of fairly kind of sort of graveyard slots for their films. Who knows what the, what the reality was? Um, but yeah, no, I, th I think I, th I think I think there is an element of flouncing. There is an element of theatrics, and that's kind of part of what makes Can Can. I mean, it, it's it, it's different to how we would do festivals over here, perhaps. But I kind I kind of like that 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 kind of sort of arrogance and that kind of preciousness that they have. And I think if you lost that, then you might lost lose. Uh, quite a lot of what the festival is kind of about, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But at the same time, is there a danger that that there are good films missing out on coverages because the everybody has to cover the kind of controversial choices and the walkouts and so on? Or do you think that that a good film at Cannes will always get the coverage it deserves? I don't think it will always get the coverage it deserves. I think we are naturally biased in this country, particularly against subtitled films. So, I mean, uh, the the ones that tend to get the, the most coverage over here, at least. Um, are the kind of big American films, or pos or the more or the European films which have got big stars attached to them? You, you, I mean, if there's a really dynamite film that doesn't tick those boxes, then it will generally get a decent amount of coverage, but it won't get as much coverage. I think we are still slaves to celebrity and big names, not necessarily to the controversial things. I mean, I, I, I guess a film like The House That Jack Built kind of. It has, has big names attached to it and is also controversial so it sort of satisfies both those criteria but um, I, I'm not sure it's always about the walkouts I mean that's something that's sort of certainly related to Cannes but I, I think we're probably more in service to the kind of big names and, and that's maybe where Cannes is falling slightly behind because in, in recent years Venice Film Festival is the one that's got all the kind of big Oscar contenders and, and, and seems to be sort of edging ahead on that front. Uh, and that could be for all kinds of reasons. Okay. Um, to, to talk a bit about uh, the coverage that The Times gives, uh, I, I guess primarily film, but also music and so on. Um, how how has it decided how many films, how many records uh, will be covered in a week in The Times, and how, kind of what what factored into the decision about about how many you have and what kind of space they get? Well, I would say they're, they're, they're slightly different. Albums and, and, and film are, are, are different in, in one big way, which was which is that, I mean, there are lots of albums released every week. We don't even make an attempt to do all of them. We would cover all the ones that we would certainly deem worthy of coverage. But with film, we generally review pretty much everything that's released. Um, that will be between four or five films and on a really busy week, maybe 11 or 12 films, maybe sometimes more. Um, there are two film critics, Kevin Maher and myself, um, and we will divvy them up between us. He will have one lead film, which is on on, on our, if, if you're thinking about the print version, on starting on a rock, whole right-hand page devoted uh, mainly to that review, and then he'll have, have another lead on the turn page. Um, so his first one will be about 900 words, the second one will be about sort of 700 words, and then I will have a lead opposite his second lead, which is about six or 700 words. And those three films are generally the biggest or most newsworthy films coming out in any any given week it's usually a fairly obvious choice as to which will be the big lead film and that will also be the film that we talk we have a weekly um video uh, film show where we talk about the film of the week and that that will be kevin's lead as well 
Um, so yeah, there's sometimes a little bit of debate about which should which should go where. Um, sometimes if Kevin say is doing a big interview with one of the stars of the big film that week, then he might think it's more. Uh, kind of appropriate if someone else reviews the film mm -hmm. that that can sometimes determine who who, who reviews what or, or vice versa um, sometimes he may have already reviewed the film when it was on at a festival uh, in which case he will uh, often uh, rework that same review maybe add to it maybe maybe kind of revise it slightly and, and uh, you know add kind of newsier stuff and and or, or stuff that he felt he didn't kind of cover kind of in sufficient detail first time round. Um, yeah, I mean, but generally, yeah, it'll, it'll be fairly obvious which one we, we which ones we go for. We try and be relatively populist. We're aware that not everyone who reads our paper um, lives in London or has access to kind of art house cinemas. So we can't generally do, we don't generally do sort of niche stuff. By niche stuff, I mean maybe most of the foreign language stuff or kind of documentaries. We wouldn't generally do that; those for the leads, unless they're really they're they're, they're really big things which are kind of transcending their mm -hmm. their pockets. Uh, mainly because yeah, the majority of people sometimes can't see these things. I mean, we're we're trying to sort of think about someone living in a provincial town who's got a maybe one multiplex or or whatever, and it'll be showing the kind of big movies. So we try and cater for, for that and not be too kind of elitist and London centric. Mm -hmm. Saying that. If, if, if there's a really big movie that, that, that doesn't fit those criteria that we think needs needs the coverage, then we will. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do that. Yeah. And does the way that films are released have any impact on that? I mean, obviously, you talked about thinking of someone who's 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 only got access to multiplex, perhaps doesn't have an art cinema and so on. What about if something's released on demand? Does that give it a better chance of uh, of being bumped up or or do you find that when things are released on demand, it's generally because the appetite isn't there to go and see them at the cinema? 
Yeah, I'm not sure that that make that make. I mean, it, it depends which, which which platform you're 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 thinking about. If it's something, if if it's if it's like more and more often, we're finding um, feature films are released simultaneously on Netflix or solely on Netflix, uh, or that or Netflix might have have a deal, you know, with with the Curzon chain, and so you can see it at sort of a handful of other cinemas, but it's generally only available on a streaming service. If that's the case, then yeah, we reckon that a significant proportion of our readers have a service like Netflix, so that 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 will make it more 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 appealing to, to, to cover it in a, in a more of a meaningful way, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back over, over kind of films and records that you've reviewed um, during your time at The Times, is there one that in hindsight you've completely changed your view of? Is, is, are there any that you look back and you think, over time I think I was wrong about that, for better or worse? I should say that I, I don't generally, I mean, I, I have done in the past, but I don't generally view, review records. I, I review live shows, music right. live shows. So, so, yeah, so it's, uh, films and live shows are generally what... Uh, I, what guess, I, I guess with, li- with live shows, you've got, there's, there's less scope to reevaluate, really. It, it's interesting, actually, we're, we're, just in terms of sort of forming an opinion. I mean, because I've, I've got to the point now where I'm walking out of a film... And, and you're we're generally at kind of press screenings and you're with various other critics and, and you know, some of whom I, I know now. And I'm now generally quite careful not to talk about what we thought of the film mm-hmm. uh, as we're walking out, because there's there, sometimes if you have a group of critics together, it, it only takes seconds, but you can kind of form this kind of horrible kind of consensus and you kind of influence each other subtly or, or not so subtly with your opinions. And I think that's really dangerous. So I generally try and talk about something completely <laughs> unrelated as we're walking out of the screening room. So yeah. I, think, I think you you need to try and sort of preserve your kind of original and kind of personal reaction to something. Well, and also surely it makes for more interesting and diverse writing if you haven't kind of naturally steered each other all in the same direction. Absolutely. I mean, you will obviously find there are many films that do kind of unite people and most and there is a general consensus, but hopefully you will all arrive at that consensus separately rather than kind of by influencing each other. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Uh, um, and it, and it, and it is, is fascinating. I mean, a, a good example is, is, is a, a Dunkirk last year, which almost everyone, including me, loved. But Kevin, our chief film critic, really didn't. And I think he ended up giving it two stars mm-hmm. uh, and was really going against the grain. And um, it was just after he got the job, actually. And he, he kind of, he, he, I think he, um, he, he went out for lunch with our editor and was kind of, uh, uh, who, who was a big fan of those kind of films and I think really liked Dunkirk. And, but I think the editor kind of respected the fact that Kevin kind of stuck to his guns and, and wasn't swayed by the fact that almost everyone else was raving about this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess as, uh, you know, as, as long as you can formulate your opinion and you've been hired for that reason, then then your opinion is your opinion ultimately. Absolutely, and I think people with strong opinions are far more enticing to read than people who sit on the fence. I think I think you know you know obviously there are some things that do scream out three stars, but I think generally it, it, it's it, it's it's more helpful to you and it's more interesting for people to read if if you're if you're going reasonably strongly one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess it, you, you, you must see it in traffic and so on that, you know, critical pannings and five star reviews, I presume, are, are usually at the top of the most read list. But they are. Um, I, I think there are other factors that are, that are more important. I think I think the nature of the film and, and what people know about it is probably more important. But, yeah, I, I think that does make a difference. And I wouldn't say we would we would we would avoid giving three star reviews just for the sake of it. But mm. I, I would say you you would certainly kind of. Try try and come up with a kind of a, a fairly kind of zesty and and spirited uh, and, and and pungent 
pungently argued uh, uh, take on 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 as many things as you can because yeah that's I'm not, I, that's what I enjoy reading I mean regardless of traffic I mean I I think yeah I think people just enjoy reading reading kind of more kind of punchy um, full blooded writing it's yeah. it's yeah it's 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 obviously the natural human and especially kind of British kind of uh, maybe responses to kind of sort of weigh things up and say oh it was, you know it was, it was okay on this 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 front but I think I think um, Journalism, although it should, should reflect real life, is is in some in some ways needs to be uh, bombastic in 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 a, in a way that that maybe other writing doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of that, what what do you think there's not enough of, and what is there too much of across film, TV, and, and music journalism? What what do you see regularly that you think ha- has no place in it, uh, and what do you wish people would concentrate on more? Um, well, I mean, there is there is lots of talk about apparently, you know, reviews are kind of declining in popularity. I mean, I I, I can't quite see that. I mean, I think in a, in a way, reviews are more important than ever, just because there's so much stuff out there. Having a kind of having a, a means of kind of filtering, the, you know, the, this huge kind of avalanche of, 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 of release. I mean, you know, especially in the advent of, of companies like Netflix, who are just pumping money in and pumping out this kind of uh, content all the time. I think it's more important than ever to have someone who's who's hopefully unbiased and well-informed and opinionated to, to help help you decide what you should watch or what you should listen to or what shows you should go to. Um, so, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't argue that we need less fewer reviews. I mean, I, I think reviews are more important than ever. Um, I mean, I, I, I do a lot of interviews, and interviews are something that I, is, is obviously something that's close to my heart. What I would like to see less of is, is these kind of American-style interviews where... Uh, they a magazine or or a newspaper has traded access to a big star with being incredibly soft on them and hasn't asked them any interesting questions and it's it's just a kind of huge puff piece. I mean those I find are nauseating and, and it's starting to happen more and more often and you know we're 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 finding it's harder to kind of get kind of big name um, subjects for interviews because because it's getting more and more tightly controlled. I mean this this would be especially true in the film world. I think that the music world is 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 still relatively open. You can kind of if you do an interview it will be somewhere less antiseptic than a than a kind of a hotel um uh suite which is generally where film re- in, interviews happen mm. uh, and it will be less kind of tightly controlled by publicists and mu- musicians are generally a little bit more opinionated and a little bit less kind of and you can understand why the film industry is kind of like that and you know these are kind of multi million you know sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars worth of kind of entertainment and, and an actor is but a small kind of relatively small cog in that big machine whereas mm. a music is is kind of relatively kind of more important to to, to their album so they would have more control over over the message they they're, they're sending surrounding it but at the same time i mean it just means you just end up with these incredibly tedious anodyne uh, puff pieces uh which i don't think does do anyone any favors really i mean I, I think in a way, I mean, you want to see a star kind of 
be frank and 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 look human and, and reveal kind of interesting kind of aspects to their personality rather than look airbrushed and perfect and sound perfect and not say anything remotely controversial. So I could certainly do with fewer of those kind of puff pieces. Mm-hmm. Do you think in some ways um, that, that social media has had a factor in that and that now that film companies know that they can access, you know, uh, their lead actors, uh, 3 million, 10 million followers or, or whatever, that they're, they feel less inclined to give access to publications? Yeah, you, that could be a point. Absolutely. It's a, it's a way of kind of getting a, a controlled but direct message out there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 it's yeah, in some ways, it's, it's sort of a depressing kind of evolution. Then again, um, Twitter and social media are often very good kind of ways for us to kind of uh, get ideas for stories or, or, or see what someone genuinely thinks or hopefully genuinely thinks because I know these these social media accounts are often quite tight, quite tightly policed by mm. assistants PR people or whatever but but it, yeah it, it offers a different perspective uh, um, which may be the only way you can actually get get a, a sort of hint of what someone thinks about a particular subject mm. yeah absolutely I mean so you talked about kind of a, the, the need to avoid kind of puff pieces and, and sort of very obvious um celebrity interviews how do you go about um putting questions together getting access and so on in order to create the sort of pieces that that aren't don't go that way it's getting harder and harder uh we i mean we we we, we, i think we still do pretty well and it's you know know, i'm not i'm not saying we should kind of you know do hatchet jobs and and be really kind of mercilessly horrible to people interview i just i just think you need to ask them interesting questions and maybe ask them you know, bits and pieces that are, that are sometimes awkward. I mean, I think the bottom line, the kind of the hoary old kind of credo that that you should always remember, but I think it's as true as it's ever been, is that you should remember, you should think about what your reader wants to know. You shouldn't be thinking about kind of keeping your the the subject of the interview happy or their publicist or the film company or the record label happy. It's it's about thinking about what the person um, who is reading that piece is thinking. Um, what do they want to know? What have they heard about this person? What questions would they be asking them? And that that should always be your primary concern. So and so there will be moments when you know you do have to ask people about kind of disturbing things in in their past. What what you know family kind of traumas or kind of broken marriages or whatever. You know uh, I mean I'm not a believer in it, it should all be about the personal stuff. And I think if you're in, in, interviewing a film person, then it should be primarily about film, but often their personal lives do inform their art and, 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 and how they're approaching roles or uh, what they're singing about or, or whatever it is. So I, I do think sometimes these questions are relevant um, and people could always say no. You know, if you ask someone a question and, and they don't want to talk about it and they say no, then that's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think it's, I, I do get annoyed when people get, um, get annoyed with me for asking it because it's my job to ask it. And obviously there are some questions which people aren't comfortable answering and that's completely fair enough. But, um, uh, I think it's my job to ask them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, I believe you've been at the times for 20 years now. Um, does that sound about right? It- Yes, it'll be 20 years in November. Okay. Uh, say, I mean, I, I, and I should hasten to add that I, I, I haven't been sort of full-time at the time for that, for that whole period, but I started in November 98, and I've been writing for them pretty much ever since mm-hmm. in some shape or form. 
Yeah. Um, most uh, most people I, I've spoken to for episodes of this podcast, uh, they they're either freelancers for life or they've been writing primarily for one title for fifteen to twenty years. So Mark Richardson yes. at Pitchfork, for example, Boyd Hilton at Heat, and your colleague Nancy, who I spoke to recently. Um, was yes. ni- was nineteen ninety eight to two thousand a fertile period for hires or expansion, or did did something happen in ju- <laughs> in journalism around those times that 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 so many people got their well, jobs that they still have today? So- yeah, well, certainly relative to today. Um, yeah, I mean, it, quite possibly. Uh, I, I certainly, it, it certainly does seem like a different world when I kind of remember the world when I when I started out at the Times. I mean, and I'm completely institutionalised now, so I don't know very much about in 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 relative terms about about how how things work elsewhere. But yeah, no, I, I certainly remember that I was actually paid when I when I started writing features in the, in the late nineties. I was paid more money than I would get now, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Yes, particularly more money than I get now, so, which if you include in, in, in yeah, I think yeah, I think we used to, yeah. If, if you include in, inflation, that, that seems incredible. In 20 years, I actually got paid more for the same number of words. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just remember, you know, the staffing was vastly di- different. You know, we had a whole uh, floor dedicated to a, su- I started off on a supplement called Times Metro, which is different from the the, met- the other Metro, but it was, yeah, this is kind of like an, an arts and entertainment supplement, what's on stuff um and yeah and, and we and we had you know we had two picture editors we had two or three designers we had a whole bank of sub editors and and you know and virtually all of those people have gone not all made redundant but um mm-hmm. some of them have gone of their own accord but but certainly the vast majority of the people who were there when i started out the times are no longer there um i'm kind of clinging on um <laughs> don't know how long for I, I tend to be fatalistic about these things but yeah it, it was certainly a very different world and 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 i think as as, as you say yeah I, I i freelanced for a spell in, in in the middle of that 20 years and i was still writing for the times for the majority of that time but um uh it was a very different world at being outside that that tent and looking in mm-hmm. and you do realize advantages you get from being part of a large organization i mean some people thrive in the freelance environment and i did for a while but after a while after a bit i, I did i did come to miss um uh, the kind of the, the kind of safety and also just you know have, having being in an office full of other people who you can bounce ideas off and can give ideas to you and and yeah it's it's, it's a very stimulating environment to be in and certainly yeah I, I adore it and I'll stay there for as long as they'll have me. Mm-hmm. In some ways it's come to me as a pleasant surprise talking to journalists for this uh, podcast that I'd assumed that the journalism would would be well I mean perhaps it is would be much more turbulent in terms of job turnover you know that there would be people who with very few exceptions people would stay at any one publication for kind of a year or a couple of years but I'm finding maybe it's just the people I'm talking to often they're people who've been writing for the, for the same title for 15 to 20 years am I, am I just picking the exceptions do you think or is it because publications and sites see the value in having a kind of consistent voice every week that people come to know and trust um I'm I, I'm not sure I, I think it's just because people realize what a what a terrifying marketplace it, it, it is outside and they realize what a good deal they have if, they, if they've been lucky enough to give been given a job like this uh, I mean as I say I, I saw the other side and I've, I've been one of those people who are kind of scratching around for work and you know they say if you're freelance the, the big cliche is you spend a third of your time looking for work a third of your time working and then a third of your time chasing up payment for work mm-hmm. you did, you know, months ago, and and that that certainly has a, a, an element of truth to it. And although you know, I, at first I enjoyed the freedom. It, 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 for, for, I, I can only speak from my personal kind of 
perspective, I much preferred where I am now, and I realise how lucky I am to be where I am now. Um, and and I, I will stay there for as long as I can. I'm sure lots of other people will feel the same. I mean, it's it's, it's a privilege to where I, I don't want to sound too sort of brainwashed about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and, and there are, there are there are things about the job that aren't perfect. You know, um, you know, there there will always be 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 things that you know that can be improved. But overall, I think it's a wonderful job. I'm I'm delighted to be doing it, and I, I think that's the, that's why the majority of people stay because they they don't want to go anywhere else. They're they're happy doing what they're doing. They realise how lucky they are. Uh, and and they won't go until they're pushed. Mm-hmm. Um, well, to talk about the time specifically a bit more, are there examples of shows, films, records, and bands that you think the Times would pick up or cover that would rarely see coverage elsewhere? Or do you think there are acts that you belong that, that belong specifically in other publications, but not the Times? I mean, we talked a bit about film reviews by and large, starting with the kind of the the big the big talking points of the week, the the kind of big releases. It, it, is that true across the board, or do you think there are there are things that the Times can take risks on? Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure it's a matter of taking risks. I think I think we do do the more outre stuff, but I I I, I think that um, yeah, I, I think as as far as music goes, say, I mean, our, our our readers might not be quite as venturous as say Guardian readers, so we we, we might not do as much kind of left field dance music or hardcore hip-hop that, as, as they do perhaps I mean we still cover that kind of stuff but we don't cover as much of it um, and certainly we are aware that our, our demographic is maybe slightly older so we, we do make sure we do cover kind of some some of the more established acts I mean in terms of the the kind of vociferous reactions to reviews I've had I mean um, I once I reviewed a couple of years ago I reviewed ELO at Wembley Stadium and gave them a fairly scathing review now I'm, I'm, I'm a big ELO fan I like their music but I, I thought the show was kind of going through the motions a little bit and I didn't think Jeff Lynn um, Jeff Lynn um, uh, uh, God I can believe what his name is it, it is Jeff um, Lynn is it not it's Jeff Lynn yes, yeah. yes. you were right first think, time um, yeah, I was right first time. I didn't think Jeff in. I didn't. I didn't think Jeff Lynn uh, exuded charisma. I think I compared him in one part of the review to um, uh, having a tone of voice as if he'd just successfully descaled his kettle. He's not one. Of, he's not one of life's kind of more kind of charismatic kind of exuberant showman. Amazing songs, but he's yeah. So, uh, um, but anyway, I got I got one of the most volcanic responses. Uh, to, to that review on Twitter and below the line online um, uh, and and we realised there's a lot of ELO fans out there and they're very passionate and I had, a, I had with, with one gentleman I had a back and forth on Twitter that carried on for I think it was two or three days wow. in the end it actually ended very amicably I mean because the, the, the main the main sort of criticism I get for live reviews and we were talking about the difference between different types of reviews live reviews is you're often if you don't like something you're often the only person in that arena or that venue who's not having a good time Mm. because you're full of people paid x number of pounds to go and see this person they might not have seen them for a long time they'll be generally be very big fans of this person or this act um uh, and you're often not, um, and and they'll all, all be having a whale of a time, and you're not, and they can't really understand. You know, they they sort of say to me, well, you know, didn't you see how what of a what an amazing time everyone else around you was having? And I said to this gentleman, yeah, absolutely, I could see that people were enjoying it, but I'm afraid if I reviewed the crowd uh, every time I did a live review, then everything would get five stars every week. <laughs> yeah, I need to say honestly what I think of it, and 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 uh, and. I, I don't have a problem with ELO. I, I, I listen to ELO's music uh, by my own volition regularly and enjoy it. Um, but I didn't enjoy that particular show that much. 
Uh, and in the end, he was kind of he was quite sporting and said, no, fair enough. Uh, thank you for kind of engaging with me. And, and generally people do on Twitter. I find you know, they could be quite kind of hostile at first and sort of sound like they're really kind of laying into you. But actually, if you kind of sort of go, have a bit of back and forth with them, it often kind of evaporates and you can kind of end on, on, a, on a fairly kind of equitable level. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking about the, the, the reactions to reviews, obviously we're talking about fans, but has have there been examples where you've kind of suffered uh, from access being withdrawn or there being kind of uh, repercussions uh, sanctions is a strong word um from from people who represent the the artists or filmmakers that you're reviewing it has happened with one particular artist it hasn't happened with me but it's happened with people writing for the times and um yeah which who's morrissey uh, morrissey is infamous for kind of blacklisting people who give him dodgy reviews mm-hmm. uh and he has um blacklisted Temporarily, I hasten to add. I mean, I don't think there's anyone he's permanently blacklisted, but there's certainly been a couple of writers who've given him dodgy reviews who he has prevented from coming and reviewing the next show. Right. So that's, that's probably about as bad as it gets, I have to say. I mean, I, I would say that um, you get more of those kind of problems with interviews, I think, than reviews. Reviews are sort of seen to be... There's something kind of sort of, sort of separate and there's a sort of a, maybe a sort of a purity to them in the sense that hopefully the writer is just responding to the film itself. Whereas with an interview, there's all different kinds of, of kind of influences at play, you know, so you, it's very selective. If you have an hour with someone and you, you can take whichever comments that they that come out of their mouth in that hour. And, and so it's, it, it can, it can, depending on how you write it up, it can go in so many different directions and, uh, and different comments can be taken in in different in different ways so i suppose part of that is is that you're you know effectively any article like that you're you're being asked to comment on their behavior which i guess is is always going to be taken more personally absolutely it's much more of a a focused yeah exactly by its very nature an interview is very much is is a more personal thing uh, with a film and even with an album, there are many more kind of constituent parts, and it's not a it's not a personal assessment in, in the same way. So you, you yeah, passions can certainly run higher. I think with with interviews, so you can kind of you can get an angry PR on the line complaining about how a particular subject was handled or uh, complaining about a headline, which hasten to add we are, we we generally wouldn't write, especially if your own piece, you certainly wouldn't often write the headline to your own piece mm. which uh, a surprisingly large number of people still don't realize no what, uh, that... what 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 is the reasoning behind that i mean i know there's obviously spa- spatial consa- constraints but surely the person best placed to write the, the the headline is the person that wrote the rest of it well i don't think so actually i think sometimes you need a fresh eye a fresh ear um to kind of i mean, I mean generally uh, traditionally the, the the headline will be written by the sub-editor so a sub-editor will be the person who who, who puts all, all of your words on the page who corrects them for spelling and grammar and accuracy um and make sure they fit and then we'll write the headline and the stand first the stand first is the kind of a couple of lines but in, in sort of bold underneath the headline that sort of explain the headline and say who, who's written the piece mm-hmm. um so that's that has traditionally been the preserve of the, of the sub-editor and we have some wonderful sub-editors at the times real kind of artists of the trade who are very good at reading a piece and 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 having a headline that will kind of absolutely nail what that piece contains often very witty uh, very kind of you know clever wordplay, and and there's a real art to that. Absolutely, I mean on the arts desk. So the commissioning editors and our arts editor will sometimes write those headlines ourselves, or if we're not happy with uh, the ones that the sub editors written, we might rewrite them. 
But um, yeah, oft, it's it's rare that uh, your own piece you'll write the headline for. I don't. I, uh, yeah, I, I think the thinking is that you, you you often need a fresh eye to kind of if you if you've been living with a piece and writing it for a day or two, sometimes you're not the best person to actually encapsulate it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have written the headline to my own pieces on occasion, but generally it's not something that happens very often. I wonder if as well, if you've written a relatively long form piece, it can be quite difficult to summarise it, you know, in the same way as, you know, bands aren't always the best people at picking singles from a record because they prefer to see it as a body of work and they don't like to distill it down. Is that the same with people who write articles, do you think? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, I think, um, yeah, it's. Uh, it, it, I think... I think it, at that stage, a piece has become a collaborative process in the sense that um, you've got more than one people looking at it from more than one angle. And the same goes when you when you've got the cover of a of a uh, of a supplement and you're and you're and and you've got the the person who you who you're interviewing inside and you're you're trying to sort of think about what 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 you want people to uh, kind of latch onto about about that person. Again, it's sometimes much more advantageous to have someone who's not um, actually written that piece who can kind of step back and see the overview and say, right, what's really, really interesting or special or different about this particular interview or this person? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, if, and, and the writer isn't always the best person to do that. Yeah, oh, fair enough. Um, so, I mean, that brings us to the end of the questions. Hopefully you've been pre-warned or aware of this next section uh, to round off the episode. Um, there are five quotes or phrases here uh, in front of me. Some of them are written by you, some of them are not written by you, and uh, we'd like to find out if you can tell the difference. Christ, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, so uh, th- these are, these will be from various bits of writing about music, film, TV, etc. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read them out and then let me know if you think it's you or not. Uh, number one. I'm sure, I'm sure you picked the most embarrassing ones you could possibly pick. Oh, so, no, yeah, I, I, try and take a fa- <laughs> I try and take a fair sample. I think, I think it's only fair not to pick anything that's been published in the last month because it's probably fresh in your memory if you wrote it. Yes, um, that would be... I also try and go back as far as I can to find a couple of really old ones as well, just for oh, just for oh, okay. just for balance. So, like, yeah. number one, an icy synthesizer melds with her distorted guitar, playing something that sounds not unlike the hands in the air riff from an EDM hit, echoing beatlessly around an empty club. The effect is to drain it of its euphoria and leave something strangely melancholy in its place. Do you think that's you or not you? It could quite easily be me. Um... But I'm going to go no. You're right, it isn't you. That was uh, Alexis Petridis in The Guardian on I See You by the XX. So, one for one. Okay, well, at least I got one right. Number two. The elaborate games feel more like a grislier version of the Crystal Maze than anything properly disturbing. There's a decent twist at the end, but the only genuinely new thing about this Farago is the title. That was me, I think. That was... was Can I guess what it was? Can I... I, You can't... Was it... um, It was you. Was I talking about... Was it one of the Saw films? Yeah, it was Jigsaw, the latest uh, instalment. Yes, yep. yes. Okay, that's, that's two for two. Uh, number three. The mysterious disappearance and Kat's struggles with her sexuality unfold without urgency. The tension builds almost imperceptibly, but the conclusion is so out of the blue it's deflating. I think that could be me, but I don't think it is. You're right, it's not you. That was uh, Stuart Huggett on White Bird in a Blizzard for NME.com. Um, ah, Number four, they're a skilled band that writes complex songs filled with unexpected musical turns, wit and observational acumen. They have a level of musicianship that hasn't been fashionable since the 70s, but they employ it in a modern way. And everyone I've heard doubt the group changed their mind when I played them one of their records. 
don't think that was me, but you're probably going to tell me it is. No, that was not you. That was uh, Joe Tangari on Pitchfork on uh, Humbug by the Arctic Monkeys. Ah, uh, okay. So you're all, you're on the on the edge of a five out of five here. Uh, okay, let's, let's fi- finally number five. You shouldn't mistake his gaucheness for uncertainty. He just obeys a different set of rules. The only time he looked phased was when the crowd broke into an impromptu rendition of "Happy Birthday to You." That was me. I can't remember who it was though. Who was it? That was you on Benjamin Clementine. Ah, oh, of course, yeah. There you go. Yes. So, uh, c- congratulations, an- another five out of five. I'm finding that I'm making these too easy, or journalists just know uh, their own voice yeah, better you, than I thought. You should, go, you should go back to kind of something I've written in 1999 or something. And yeah. I definitely would remember. Certainly people who... it would be, it would be pe- even worse written than I write now. <laughs> <laughs> people who've been writing for 20 years are obviously at a much, a much bigger disadvantage when it comes to this. So, uh, congratulations. Um, we're almost at the end of the episode. Is there anywhere that people can... Obviously, they can read your work in The Times every week. Um, is there anyone else people can catch up with you or read previous work or anything else? No, sadly, I don't have a website, but it's all there. Everything I've written is all on the Times website, so you can just go there and you can you can search. The search uh, function is really good. Um, and, yeah, I should just say I, I do the, the film show with Kevin Marr, which which you can also see on the website, um, which is um, uh, published every Friday. Perfect. Um, these are all easy to find, but we'll pop links onto Twitter anyway, uh, twitter.com slash reads like a four. Um, so that's the end of the quiz and the end of the episode. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. There we go. That's episode 16 of Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with critics, reviews and criticism. I'm Adam Brooks. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Nonfiction or the podcast is on Twitter, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, at Reads Like a Four and Instagram too. Uh, if you're a critic and you'd like to be on a future episode, then please do get in touch. Reads Like a Four at gmail.com. Otherwise, we will see you next Friday uh, with a brand new chat with mm, not quite a critic this time, but uh, somebody who is very much involved in the world of professional criticism. Uh, I'll leave that mystery hanging until next week. Thanks and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.